Welcome to the Element of Surprise. It has uh, been a while, but that's because I've been planning some things. I've been doing some some work, getting it uh, all fleshed out for y'all here. So um, without further ado, I have said I was going to do quite a few things, and I got quite a few things planned out. I'm going to lay them out for you now. Uh, we got more misquoted movie lines. We got, uh, I'm going to give you detailed instructions on how I would uh, fight the alien from the movie Aliens and win. Um, I'm going to tell you about some fucked up kid shows that are, uh, in Australia. I'm going to compare my genitals to cars. I'm going to talk about, uh, political analyst James Carville. And I'm going to tell you, uh, why James Carville is proof of evolution, uh, of the theory of evolution. Uh, I'm going to talk about why riding a bike is embarrassing and it's an embarrassing feat of stupidity, actually. And then last but not least, I'm going to give you my review of the movie Jaws 3, formerly known as Jaws 3D when it came out, but they never uh, they never released the 3D cut of the movie. Um, but that's that's neither hither nor thither. So without further ado, let's begin. Oh, 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 before I go, before I go any further, before I go any further, um, if you want to check out this podcast, good for you. I encourage that. So um, you can find us at eosmentallyirregular.podbean.com. That's where we're. That's our hosting site. That's where we're at. Uh, check out our Facebook. Check out our art. Check out our. Check out our Facebook. They took our jobs. Uh, check out our. Check out our Facebook at uh, www.facebook.com backslash eosmentallyirregular. And uh, from there, you can be privy to uh, all the Element of Surprise uh, junks and stuff that we do there. So, you know, check that out. Give us a like. Give us a review. Uh, join the Element of Surprise group. And uh, there's more stuff that, uh, more than just audio stuff that goes on in the group. So be part of the group. Have fun. Everybody have fun. Uh, everybody Wang Chung tonight. Okay, so here we go. Uh, misquoted movie lines. Um, okay, so Gone with the Wind, 1939. There was that classic line where uh, she's begging him not to leave, and he, she says something to him, and he goes, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Um, that line was horribly misquoted. Uh, the actual line that Clark Gable spoke there was, Frank sent me a fine cut of ham. So he was, sent, he was informing her that... Uh, he, was, he was still ignoring what she had to say, but he was informing her that his friend Frank had sent him a nice fine cut of ham, which back in those days was hard to come by. You know, it was hard to come by. Uh, you know, so he was pleased by that. Clark Gable was pleased by it. Uh, the Godfather, 1972. Fucking classic movie, The Godfather. Um, you know, Marlon Brando, 
says at one point in time, he goes, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And that's that's my Marlon Brando, that's my piss poor Marlon Brando impression. But, you know, he says, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And everybody always uh, quotes that as, the, as that. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. But that's not how it was said. What, um, what Marlon Brando actually said is, I'm delighted that you noticed my cummerbund. Because he was dressed up fancy. For you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. And I'm de- delighted that you noticed my cummerbund. How are you going to get him, uh, Godfather? How are you going to get him to do what uh, you noticed? Nice cummerbund, by the way. Oh, I'm delighted that you noticed my cummerbund. And that's how the line went. Wizard of Oz, 1939. What, what movie can you think of that is more classic than The Wizard of Oz? As well as more fucked up, uh, for that matter. But, uh, you know, that's a whole different podcast altogether. Uh, so, you know, yeah, Wizard of Oz. You know, they, they arrive in Oz. Everything is uh, went from that sepia black and white shit to, uh, you know, it's bright color, and uh, Dorothy notices this, and she talks to her dog, I guess hopefully ex- not expecting it to talk back, because that's uh, evidence that she might be having a psychotic break, but then the fact that she's in Oz as well might be evidence that she's having a psychotic break, or we the audiences. Um, either way, she turns to the dog and says, Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, and that's how it's misquoted. The actual line she said uh, is, give me my red shoes and I'll kiss your scarecrow dick. So that's what she had uh, said in that part of the movie. And, you know, it's, it's often misquoted. It's okay. You know, we, 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 we see these films, and it doesn't mean that we always get it right. Uh, you know, here's looking at you, kid. That's this line from Casablanca, 1942. Um, but that's not, what, um, that's not what Humphrey Bogart said. He didn't say, here's looking at you, kid. He said, I have cancer, and I'm really not that mad about it. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but that's the actual line. Um, Sudden Impact, uh, Dirty Harry movie from 1983. Sudden Impact. There's that line that everybody gets wrong. They think it's that classic line that says, Go ahead, make my day. And that's, uh, I guess that's um, Clint Eastwood with a little bit of Batman in there. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop doing impressions of the people and just say the fucking lines. How about that? So uh, yeah, he says, Go ahead, make my day. And that's not actually what he said. He uh, pulls out his 357 Magnum revolver and he puts it in that motherfucker's face and he says, you look like my daughter's fuck buddy. And uh, that's why he was hunting that guy down. That's why he's going to kill him. Um, Taxi Driver, 1976. Robert De Niro, he shaves his head. He's got the mohawk. He's going to go fuck some shit up. And, uh, you know, fun fact, this line, uh, you know, he does the thing where in the mirror where he's talking to himself and he's like, you talking to me? You talking to me? Well, there's no one else here, so you got to be talking to me. Um... You know, that fun fact real quick, uh, De Niro improvised that line because in the script it only said that uh, Travis speaks to himself in the mirror, so he was given some liberties to just say whatever. And that's why the line always gets um, misquoted because he, you know, everyone's like, oh, he said, he sit there and he goes, oh, you talking to me? You talking to me? But that's not what he said. He said, excuse me, was it I to whom you were addressing? And, uh, yeah, um, Apocalypse Now, 1979 with uh, Martin Sheen, another movie with Marlon Brando. Uh, you know, there's that line that everybody in the helicopter, that everybody thinks he goes, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, but that's not what it was said. It's misquoted. He says, I love the smell of Marlon Brando in the morning because I guess Brando, you know, you wake up next to that musk of Marlon, of, you know, 1970s and uh, 80s Marlon Brando, where he wasn't quite the fat piece of shit that he was going to become in the end of, at the end of his life, but he wasn't quite that like, you know, handsome, young James Dean type that uh, he was known for. He had already done the, uh, 
you know, the, the Godfather and Superman, he played Jarrell. So he was now, you know, just kind of like a sweaty mess of a human being. And he was just getting bigger and sweatier as the days went by. So that gave him a very distinct odor. And so thereby, you know, I, I love the smell of Marlon Brando in the morning was the actual quote. Um, so then, oh, you know, here's another good one. Always misquoted. E.T. E.T. the extra testicle, uh, extraterrestrial, whatever. Yeah, no, I, that's not, has, that's not anything about my medical conditions. Um, hmm. No, E.T. the extraterrestrial, 1982. Uh, you know, everybody knows that line, E.T. phone home, where the finger, and he lights up his finger, and for some reason it heals wounds, which makes me wonder if his other finger could cause them, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about right now. I just, I just think that would be a great thing. He's got the one finger that glows like white, and it, he touches it to an injury, and, um, that injury is healed. So maybe he should, maybe his other finger would like glow like, uh, like, 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 like a black light or something. He would touch it to you and you'd like, um, you develop like an instantaneous, like a uh, tumor or, or some shit like that. I don't know. But, uh, you know, anyway, the, the quote ET phone home is always, always misquoted. What ET, what the ET actually said is, uh, ET is dissatisfied with the level of respect being given it and would feel a lot better if Elliot were to make some stew. So, uh, you know, E.T. is dissatisfied with the level of respect being given it and would feel a lot better if Elliot were to make some stew, is the actual quoted line, uh, the actual line from E.T. And if you don't believe me, that's fine, because I'm, I'm not making this shit up. That's the actual line. That's how it's misquoted. Uh, Scarface, you know, with uh, Al Pacino, Scarface. He says, what, what was, what's the line? We say hello to my little friend. And that's not what he says. Uh, everybody thinks he says, say hello to my little friend, but that's not what he says at all. He says, I'm not wearing any panties, so feel free to grope me. Um, you know, 1984, the Terminator, the classic Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he walks into the police station and, uh, you know, is, is Sarah Connor here? Uh, yes, she is, but she can't see anybody right now. Are you a friend of hers? And everybody thinks he says, I'll be back. But that's not what he says. He just garbles nonsense in an Arnold Schwarzenegger tone. He's just, get the chopper back. So, you know, it's just garbled nonsense. Uh, 1977, possibly the greatest movie uh, ever made, or at least up until that point. Star Wars. Uh, you know, there's the line. May the force be with you. And it's always misquoted because that's not how it was said in the, in the original movie. Um, I went out of my way on this one. I've been emailing George Lucas nonstop about this, and uh, I finally got an answer back from him. Uh, through, of all things, a carrier pigeon. There was a carrier pigeon that dropped off, stopped at my work, and it had a little note on it, and I opened it up, and it was a note from George Lucas, and he said, yes, you're right. The uh, quote, that line is always misquoted, and the actual uh, quote, per George Lucas, uh, was, let's use space magic. And it was supposed to be said like that, like almost in like this, uh, like voice like this. It's like, all right, uh, let's use space magic. And then they go and they use space magic. Um, so that's the actual line from Star Wars from 1977. Um, oh, okay, 1996, Jerry Maguire. Uh, that scene with him and uh, Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. is in the bathroom and they're on the phone. He's trying to get him to join up with him and be his agent. And Cuba Gooding Jr. says, show me the money. Show me the money. That's a classic line, right? But I bet you think that's the line, but you're wrong because it's wrong. What he actually said is, I'm black, give me your wallet. And that's the actual line uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. said. He wasn't uh, joining Tom Cruise there. He was robbing him, and they just edited, edited the film together in such a way that makes it look like they're becoming friends. And uh, Tom Cruise is going to be his agent. But that's not how it goes. He just says, I'm black, give me your wallet. So it's very racial and very stereotypical. I, uh, I mean, I didn't make that up. 
Um, okay, Dirty Dancing. Who, who here loves Dirty Dancing? Show of hands. Yeah, me neither. Um, any, but there's that line at the end where uh, 36-year-old uh, Patrick Swayze comes, uh, you know, sauntering into the dance, into the talent show dance at the end, and he got, walks up to his 16-year-old, uh, his 16-year-old lover's uh, parents, and he says, nobody puts baby in the corner. And then she goes with him, and they do that dance where he lifts her up in the air. Uh, that's actually not how the line went. Uh, he walked up to her family, and then he looked at her, and he said, let's hump, statutory style. And uh, he did. And then his father called the police and, you know, he went to jail. The end. Um, so that, that's the actual line from Dirty Dancing. Let's hump statutory style. Um, okay, Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. You know, that's got a great line in it uh, by uh, James Earl Jones even where he uh, threatens, to hit, threatens to hit Kevin Costner, um, who I'm just going to start referring to as Waterworld. From now on, Kevin Costner is just exclusively Waterworld. Uh, he threatens to hit Waterworld with a, with a crowbar, and he says, I'm going to hit you with a crowbar, and then you'll go away. And that's an actual line. That line is not, misqu- not misquoted. Uh, however, there's that line with the disembodied voice that goes, it's like, If you build it, he will come. And that's not the line. That's not what he says. Uh, the disembodied ac- voice actually goes, My nipples are chafed. So his nipples were chafed, and he, t- he says that, Disembodied Boy says that on high. Kevin Costner hears it. Waterworld hears it and decides, you know what? I'll fix that. I'll build a baseball diamond. Everything will get better then. And that's the that's the, that's the that's what sets the plot. That's what furthers the plot, and the uh, the movie goes on. Um, okay, Aliens. Aliens is a classic movie. There's that scene where the Queen Alien in Aliens sneaks aboard the ship and it rips Lance Henriksen in half, and milk goes. Uh, curdled milk goes spewing out of his innards. And uh, the little girl goes and hides, and they, the a- queen alien's trying to find her, and it pulls up the, uh, it pulls up the stuff from inside the, uh, to, to find her, and it finds her hiding. And, you know, that's, uh, uh-oh, Sigourney Weaver's coming out, and she comes out in her, uh, her mechanical suit, and she says, get away from her, you bitch! And that's, but that's the, how everybody always quotes it, but that's not the line. That's not the line, people. The actual quote from the movie is not get away from her you bitch it is i'm going to have a salad for lunch would anyone care to join me and that's what sigourney weaver said and i think i don't even know that they, she realized they were filming at that point i think she was just talking to like the cast and crew but the camera was still running so i mean if you watch the movie quote closely the queen alien finds the little girl pulls the uh pulls the the ventilation shaft open and she finds the little girl and it's going to get her and sigourney weaver comes out in her robot suit and the lights are shining and there's all that fog for some reason inside of a spaceship. And she says, I'm going to have a salad for lunch. Would anyone care to join me? And then they, she fights the Queen Alien. So that's how that went. Um, okay. 1999, Fight Club. Classic movie, Fight Club. You know, it's got uh, Ed Norton and Brad Pitt. And uh, one of them doesn't exist, maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen Fight Club. And if you haven't seen Fight, Fight Club, go fucking watch Fight Club now. But there's the line that everybody knows, even people that have never seen or read the book know that line. The first rule of Fight Club is, you don't talk about Fight Club. You think that's the quote, right? Because that's, that's what everyone says the quote is. But that's not the quote. The quote is actually, Brad Pitt goes down and there's the group of people from the Fight Club uh, sitting there. And he walks up to them and he, you know, he's, looking, he's got a bruise on his eyes, looking all badass. And he said, somebody ordered pizza and the guy's here and somebody's got to pay for it. I didn't order it, so I'm not paying for it. It's Domino's. I'd have gotten Pizza Hut. So who's paying for this pizza? And that's the quote. 
That's the quote. He's, he's questioning the Fight Club as to who is paying for this Domino's pizza that is now at the door. Because he's not going to do it, because he didn't order it. Um, and the last, the last misquoted movie line of the day, of this episode anyway, is uh, from the 2017 release of Star Wars The Last Jedi. There's that line where Kylo Ren is uh, talking to Rey about, uh, you know, the Sith and the, the Jedi and the light side and the dark side and Snoke and Skywalker and all that. And he says, let the past die. Kill it if you have to. Um, it's the only way to become what you were really meant to be. But that's, a, that's misquoted. That's misquoted. Uh, the actual thing that Adam Driver's Kylo Ren said to Ray is, I know an awesome place down the road that serves the best spaghetti. And he was trying to get her to go have spaghetti with him where they could discuss their ideals and maybe come to a general consensus. But uh, she doesn't like spaghetti. You know, She's used to eating uh, bread that is once a powder. You put the powder in the water and it turns into bread for some reason on a desert planet. Um, watch the, the, the Force Awakens because that's what she's used to eating. She didn't want the spaghetti. Um, okay, so that has been uh, misquoted movie lines for tonight. Um, since I just got over the alien thing, since I just went into aliens, um, I think next I'm going to tell you how to kill the alien. So if you've ever find yourself uh, confronted by the alien from aliens, which uh, I believe they call the xenomorph, by the way. Um, so if, you ever, if you're ever confronted, confronted by the xenomorph, and, uh, you know, you, it's got acid for blood, and it's got that little mouth inside of its big mouth uh, for no reason. And its head is shaped like a, like a shiny black penis, and uh, it's got a tail. Um, you know, you know, you, you, you got you to gotta find a way to kill it. You got to find a way to kill it. That isn't going to harm you, you know. So, I have devised such a way, and I'm going to share that with each and every one of you listeners right now. So, first off, if you doubt that I can... Uh, do this single-handedly if I, that I can single-handedly kill the alien uh, then you clearly have no idea who you're dealing with okay let's begin um, it's not even that hard to outsmart or even kill the xenomorph for the record uh, you know I don't think I would have any problem with it um, I wouldn't have uh, first off explored the alien wreckage in the first place I don't care what the machine or computers on my ship said uh, I would have been said sent down a robot to do it um, because it's really that simple. It's not going to get a robot's not going to get infected with alien in its chest. There's not going to be ch and chest burster. But for the sake of argument, somebody from my crew went into the ship, and they, you know they got the, the 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 face hugger thing on it. John Hurt was there. He got uh, the aliens busted out of his chest. And now there's a fucking alien on my ship, and now I'm left as the only survivor, and I got to fight it. So using my training in uh, Krav, Krav Maga and small arms, small firearms. I uh, would easily kill the any, any alien uh, xenomorph should I come across one. And to be perfectly honest with you, it wouldn't even really be, it's not a challenge. It wouldn't even be a challenge for me. Um, you know, first off, as I would effortlessly, as I effort, <laughs> I would effortlessly evade every one of its clumsy blows. Uh, and I wouldn't just hurt it physically with my razor sharp reflexes and my Patrick Swayze like roundhouse kicks, but I'd uh, also hurt it emotionally as well. I'd begin to like chaunt, taunt it for you know bursting out of chests. I'd call it retarded or and uh, mock the phallic shape of its head. Um, I'd laugh at its stupid inner jaw and tell it that its very existence is uh, to be used as a recurring plot device in which a character with actual depth is forced to face their fears of the creature, uh, fears my, that I myself I might add do not possess. Um, and then finally, after I've emotionally battered it like a trailer park ex-wife, I'd punch it square in the jaw, the outer jaw. Uh, my first punch, of course, knocking its outer jaw clean off its head, so that way its little 
baby inside mouth jaws just kind of dangling there like a, like a proboscis on a fly, uh, like a you know like a like a limp dick just flopping out of its mouth. Um, now I, you know keeping in mind, okay, Chad, well you just punched it and its jaw came off. It's got acid for blood. How didn't you burn its hand, or how didn't it burn through your hand? Because it didn't. Because my punches are that powerful and that fast. Um, but you know that wouldn't kill the alien first off. So I mean recovering, I guess after that the alien would uh, get up. It would charge me. Um, you know, it's, it's slightly concussed now, but it would still charge me. So I would sidestep that like an expert bullfighter because that's actually not a big deal for me to do. And uh, then the stupid creature, which would have very little strength and even less time now left to live, uh, it would go careening past me. Then I would summon all of my inner spirit and force my strength into one final devastating punch. Uh, the alien would look at me very groggily, like the way Rocky Balboa uh, looked whenever he was about to be KO'd in the second round of the first fight with Clubber Lang. And uh, much like Clubber Lang, I'd take a reflective moment to look upon its stupid face with no remorse before firing my fist straight through it, straight through the alien creature and evaporating it into a mist of acid blood. Um, that's, that's proven. I, I, that's exactly how I'd kill the alien. So uh, should you ever be forced with an alien uh, xenomorph situation, you can contact me and I will come kill it for you. I, you know, using Krav Maga, small firearm skills, um, combination of uh, energy-fused punches and uh, bullfighting skills. Uh, this, this, this fucker is not going to be able to, uh, yeah, it, it would have no chance. It'd have no chance. Um, you know, you can mock it. Uh, you got to use Patrick Swayze, like, roundhouse kicks. Mock it in every way you can. Call it retarded. Uh, you know, just make, make fun of it. Throws it throws the whole fucking thing off, and then you can just easily beat the shit out of it, and uh, then then you you win. So that's how you kill the alien from the uh, the alien franchise. That's how that's how I do it, um, you know. And I, I that's how I would do it if I was ever confronted with one. Which uh, how do you know I haven't been? Um, okay, moving on. Let's see. Uh, ooh, you want to know what I found out? Because I was uh, you know me, I'm mentally irregular. I dig into uh, just really really strange things. And, uh, you know, I've done on here before, I've done the children's cartoon, or I've done forgotten cartoons, and I've done children's stories, you know? And I tell you about what they really are. So, um, I was digging around, I'm like, oh, what, what are some shows from, like, around the world? What are some shows from around the world that, like, children get into? You know, like, uh, like Sesame Street. What would Sesame Street be in, uh, you know, in different countries? And, I, yeah, there were some ones that were just kind of freaky, but, you know, that's, it's just their cultures. But then I f stumbled ac across Australia. And what do we know about Australia? Um, it's not quite Great Britain, but it's populated with people who put the same queen on their money. Uh, they hate to be called British, and uh, it was originally an island founded by thieves, uh, thieves and pirates. So, jump forward uh, a couple, a couple, uh, like two centuries, and what do we have now? We have a country that, uh, you know, fancies itself an actual country, but it's not. So... You know, I don't know whether it's due to some sort of misunderstanding or just bad advice over there or, or maybe just a deliberate vengeance against children in general. Uh, but Australia has some really fucked up shows and uh, many of the characters from their shows are just objectively horrifying. I've, I've discussed shit like this before with the children's stories and stuff. Um, if you haven't heard those episodes, go back and listen to them and then you'll, you'll be caught up. Uh, but... I did my research into these Australian shows, and here are a few more uh, disturbing characters from uh, some of the kids' TV shows, uh, all from Australia, that I guess would be better suited in one of the seven, her circle, one of the, uh, seven circles of hell. 
Um, the first show, it was called Peppermint Park, and it was released in the late 80s in Australia. It was like, the best way to describe it is it was uh, direct to VHS and direct from hell puppet show. It was like Sesame Street if uh, Sesame Street was filmed in your creepy uncle's basement and starred uh, <laughs> starred uh, hallucinations who have decided to turn on you is the best way to describe it. Um, you can't say it wasn't effective either because, you know, like after learning about traffic safety from a pig-faced man in the throes of an existential crisis, uh, kids will be far too terrified to go anywhere near a street. So, you know, it, it, it lived up, <laughs> it did its job, I suppose. Um, and the human beings in that show aren't any less horrifying, by the way. Um, you can check this whole show out on YouTube. Uh, it's called Peppermint Park, and it's on YouTube. Um, but uh, the human beings in the show aren't any, aren't, are, are not any less horrifying than the, the puppet creatures. Uh, viewers learn more about the uh, physical and emotional properties of the color blue from a miserable old man with what appears to be a shrunken head than they ever did from Elmo or Grover. I promise you that. Uh, meanwhile, and there's another clip I saw on YouTube in which, uh, what I can only assume to be the puppet of, like, Aretha Franklin or some sort of soul stringer illustrates, uh, the color red by performing, um, what can only be some sort of satanic summer summoning ritual of some corn. Um, you know, and they're all overseen. Their host, uh, which is direct Sesame Street ripoff here, their host is called Ernie. And, uh, the best way to describe Ernie would be that he's like a refugee or some form of escapee from Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, uh, poorly disguised as a man. And, and he has a fondness for the letter M, like a very deep fondness. And, uh, I'd I swear the letter, like the amount of leather, letter M's around Ernie, uh, it, 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 it'd be prop, I, I could tell you it'd be propaganda. I'd swear it was propaganda if it could, if I could just figure out what the fuck it would be propaganda for. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, Peppermint Park was canceled rather swiftly. Um, but it does, it, it does have, uh, it's on YouTube, so you can watch it, you can get your hands on it. Uh, so if you'd like to be scarred emotionally and mentally, go ahead and check it out over at YouTube. Again, that was called Peppermint Park. So there was this other show from, uh, also from Australia, because Australia's got the most fucked up kid shows, and this one was called Mr. Blobby. Um, how can I describe meeting Mr. Bo Mr. Blobby? What was it like to, uh, when Mr. Blobby made his appearance in an episode? So, um, okay, the show's from 1992. And, um, the best way I can describe meeting Mr. Blobby is he was either hatched or born or summoned by some sort of dark spirit. Um, and, uh, the form he took on is that of a disturbing polka-dotted uh, life creature, and, uh, you know, it's like if a clown and a wad of bubblegum and, like, a helium balloon all fucked, and then that kid was born retarded, so that's, like, what, that's Mr. Blobby, that's what he would look, that's what he looked like, um, and, you know, believe it or not, he was around for, like, over a decade, he had, like, in 1993, he had a, he had a song that was, like, a number one Christmas hit, and you can see it for yourself, um, I will say that if you ever see the music video, it has Mr. Blobby, like, getting, uh, like, a pseudo-erotic sponge bath and holding a mutant baby version of himself. It's pretty fucked up. Uh, but it was enough to grab the attention of the New York Times. Um, and, uh, 1994, there was actually a New York Times article that described Mr. Blobby, and they described it as, quote, proof of Australia's deep-seated attraction to trash, and referred to the titable, uh, the, 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 the Mr. Blobby character as Barney without his medication. Um, I don't know what deep secrets that writer knew, 
but uh, you know maybe we shouldn't let Barney work with children either. So, but uh, you know he seemed to be onto something. Um, but if there's one thing that really distinguished Mr. Blobby from uh, the fellow horrors of uh, Australia was uh, his impressively long career, because uh, after years he still makes appearances um, in programs over there, and he's got his own. Uh, he had his own theme park in Australia for a while, and his most recent appearance was actually in 2017. Um, he keeps popping up less and less frequently over the years, but don't, that doesn't mean that you're safe. That doesn't mean you can drop your guard because, uh, Mr. Blobby could strike again at any moment. And I, we don't know when that is. He's just going to pop up just, he's like the shark from Jaws that I'm going to get into later with, uh, Jaws 3. He's like the shark, you know, you just think you're safe to go back in the water. And Mr. Blobby pops up with a mutant baby version of himself singing Christmas tunes at you. So, you know, he's fucked up. Uh, lastly... La lastly, but certainly not least, from Australia was a show called Lift Off, L-I-F-T space O-F-F, -F. and it was another Australian educational TV show. Um, in many ways, it was actually kind of really ahead of its time, uh, to be honest, you know, it, it showed kids how, showing kids how to act in certain situations, uh, that you wouldn't even really see on Sesame Street over here, you know, and it showed like how they think and imagine and learn and understand things. Um, on the other hand, it was hosted by a faceless baby, a gray faceless baby. Uh, that baby was named E.C., um, and it was supposed to be a living doll that I guess was supposed to represent, uh, every child, hence E.C., but, um, it actually E.C. would only make them shit their pants, to be perfectly honest, because this thing is fucking terrifying. Um, even so, I did research into it, and according to one of the show's actors, its lack of facial features on EC was intended to allow kids to interpret it any way they want. Um, yeah, I, I guess it can't eat me does technically count as an interpretation, I, I suppose. You know, that's how I get it, because it doesn't have a mouth. Um, it doesn't seem like there was any middle ground on this show. It's just like, okay, well, on, you know, you get monsters that are hor horrific monsters, or you get a baby without a face. Um... Maybe it's either, you know, there, there's no middle ground because it was either you get a baby without a face, no facial features, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, or you get like entirely too much features. Uh, there's Beverly, which is a magic potted plant that had one eye and it sees the world of nature and uh, probably your deepest fears because it would also see what appeared to be in uh, the show. There was a lizard that would like, like a lizard character looking thing. It looked like, um, you know, the spitter dinosaurs with the neck things that come up and they go... <laughs> And then they spit the shit in uh, the fat guy's eyes in Jurassic Park. It looked like that, but only its head with like a snake body lurking in a window and watching into a bathroom window, watching people in the shower. Um, is, 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 I'm not making this up. It's called Lift Off. You can check it out. Um, and then there were some non-mutant humans on the show as well. Uh, you know, but only, uh, only so far as you consider the characters of the Nicktoon Doug, if they came to life. That, that's how non-mutant they were. Um, in reality, they're terrifying. They're, they're horrifying. Um, and they were supposed to be like an industrious band. Like they had a band and a diner where they, they had a diner where their band would perform basically. And I'm, 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 <laughs> I can only imagine what they served at that fucking diner. Uh, presum <laughs> presumably I would assume they would, uh, serve misfortune and, uh, <laughs> that shameful secret that you never told anybody. Um, amazingly, this show lasted three, three whole seasons, um, but I'm sure it lives on in the, uh, hearts, minds, and, uh, every shadow that has ever frightened you, and as, of course, as well as the deep, re deepest recesses of the human soul. 
So that was Lift Off, um, another Australian show. And, uh, yeah, they were, you know, you think there's fucked up shit going on over here. You know, I, I, let me put it to you this way. I, I talk about how mentally fucking irregular I get. I could, I could not, in my worst nightmares, dream this shit up. And I'm just like, holy shit. So, you know, check them out. It's uh, Peppermint Park, Mr. Blobby, and Lift Off. Okay, what do we do next? Well, there's only one way I think that we can follow that, is uh, let's talk about James Carville. Uh, that's right, I'm going to talk about political analyst James Carville. And uh, for those of you that don't know who James Carville is, he's a political analyst. He's a ball guy, wears glasses and suits, but um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about politics in him. I'm just going to use James Carville as an example uh, of the proof of the theory of evolution. It's, uh, it's evolution at its finest. So, James Carville is proof that evolution, that the theory of evolution is true. And, um, you know, even though the remains of the very first James Carville have yet to be ex excavated, um, it's just widely accepted that, uh, James, that the James Carville species emerged from the ocean somewhere around, uh, 30 million BC. And I guess it was like a crossbreed of some sort of un unidentified sentient fungus and uh, some other type of like like uh, prehistoric fish, uh, you know. But then it uh, you know as as every creature that evolved does, it took its first uncertain steps onto uh, land on the continent that is uh, now known as Africa. And the young creature, uh, the young James Carville creature, scampered scampered away out 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 of the harsh rays of the sun and into a nearby tree canopy, uh, beginning its long and fascinating trek into history. Um, you know, for several thousands of years, the James Carvels lived in the shadows and subsumed themselves uh, on uh, by living off of um, the occasional wounded dinosaur or uh, whatever giant insects they could they could get their hands on, because they are masters of stealth and um, they are masters of using opportunistic attacks with uh, no natural enemies to thin out their numbers. Uh, be now they thrived and uh, were given the luxury of a peaceful era in which they could multiply and evolve. And uh, the end result of this period, they came to resemble kind of velociraptors in a lot of ways. You know, their size, general appearance, uh, scaly hide, their, the way their voices are shrill. Um, the razor-sharp talons of the James Carvels were used to eviscerate prey and straighten their fashionable neckties. Uh, their craniums uh, doubled in size with every millennia that passed. Um, which in that, and that served two purposes, I'd like to... Uh, point out. Uh, the increased brain capacity improved the Carvel's ability to outsmart enemies and debate the pros and cons of sleeping in tar pits, while the larger forehead allowed the Carvel's to temporarily stun play by stun, stun, stun prey by reflecting the sun uh, off of it directly into their eyes, and then they would headbutt them. So, uh, much like the modern-day gopher, uh, James Carvel was truly the ruler of the animal kingdom. Then, uh, then came the comet, and, you know, with that, the end of the dinosaur era. Dinosaur era. Um, and then within the span of a few weeks, the populations of the James Carvels plummeted. And they would, uh, they would have become entirely extinct uh, had they not migrated into a series of caves that they found in northern Europe. Um, it was here that they fed on bats and took to inbreeding and hibernated for decades, uh, or even, even centuries at a time. Um, have you ever seen that movie, The Descent? where the girls go, like, cave climbing with, uh, like, they go into the cave with the climbing, and then there's, like, the, the, the creatures in there that are, like, hideously inbred creatures that, like, crawl around. Um, you know, it's, 
it's exactly that. That's what the James Carville species did, you know. And in time, just like in the movie The Descent, they forgot about the outside world uh, completely until the outside world actually discovered them. Um, it was actually into the Middle Ages when, you know, it's, humanity had come into power and these curious creatures, the Car Carvilles, spent much of their time, uh, you know, kidnapping the, uh, the, the, the warrant princess or anyone that would get lost in the woods or go into the caves or anyone that dared go into their caves, uh, you know, waging their weapons forge of steel and, uh, you know, while adventuring for what is now known as Bling Bling, um, small parties of knights would enter the cave full of James Carvels, and they would awake the creatures, and the Carvels would chase the adventurers from their caves, uh, and they became so enraged by this uh, disruption that it became, they, they, they started going on rampages. They destroyed uh, everything that just stood in their path. Uh, they were eating whoever was unfortunate enough to face them head on. Um, and soon, the, the word of these Carvels spread, only they were called dragons, is the way they described them. Because, they, you know, I mean, you look at James Carvel and you don't, and his species, and, you know, you don't know what you're looking at. So they, back in the Middle Ages, they called them dragons, and that's where the legends of dragons come from. Um, and, you know, though the, at this point now, because knights were now hunting them down, uh, up until then, the, Car the, the Carvel had enjoyed basically the luxury and safety that comes at being the top of, on, of, on top of the food chain for millions of years, right? And, uh, you know, he'd survived the impact of the that wiped out the dinosaurs. But, uh, you know, now it's got mankind hunting it. So, um, you know, it, it, it was facing certain extinction. And it finally got down to the point where only one James Carville remained. It was a pregnant female James Carville, and she was hiding in the deep woods of Scotland. Uh, you know, the trackers had no problem finding her. But as soon as she found herself badly injured after an ambush, she uh, swatted her attackers to the ground. Uh, with her tail, and roared a uh, string of profanities denouncing, denouncing uh, something called tort reform, and then she fled into near, the nearby uh, Loch Ness Lake. Um, it was the water that had been the point of origin for their species, and so, rightly so, that she would return there for safety. Um, you know, badly injured, she went into the water uh, and fell into a deep slumber, uh, surfacing for air every 36 years. Um, between each breath, tales of her appearances would spread like wildfire and uh, were extinguished by uh, the fire-retardant sands of time. Uh, in the 1940s, she finally surfaced long enough to give birth to a white-skinned runt, and then she succumbed to the wounds that had never quite healed. Uh, her spawn uh, emerged from the lake with his suit uh, uncomfortably wet but otherwise fine. He straightened his tie. Uh, with his talons, and uh, the sun's harsh rays were irritating his beady little eyes, so he scampered into a nearby village where he grew up learning uh, our human customs and the value of earning a living. Uh, his first business actually involved uh, charging an exorbitant amount of money to write dirty limericks for people. Uh, this business was an utter failure, of course, uh, and only provided him with enough income to live comfortably for about seven years. Uh, after this, he gathered what little gold he had and traveled by boat to the United States, uh, where he embarked in a fruitful, <clears throat> excuse me, fruitful career uh, is a, in the world of politics as a political analyst, which he actually picked up rather easy and with uh, no previous experience or credibility of any kind. Um, so yeah, that is how the miracle of evolution gave us the creature called James Carville. And uh, only through his keen ability to adapt to situations, uh, which was his kind's uh, greatest trait, 
was the, his ability to adapt. But uh, sadly, he is not adaptable enough to reproduce asexually and further lo- the line of James Carvels. So uh, even though he may walk among us, he is very much alone inside. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's James Carvel, folks. That is the truth, and uh, that's proof of evolution. So let's see, what's next? How about I talk about my genitals? How about I compare my genitals to cars, and then I'll talk about Jaws? Um, okay, so um, yeah, I've been having this idea in my head is that, uh, you know, everybody likes to talk about their dick. Every, everybody thinks, oh, guys just talk about their dicks. And, uh, you know, what else do guys love? Well, apparently we love uh, heavy-duty machineries. So I decided that it would be fun to make a list of vehicles and then take time to think out how I can, how that vehicle could be my, my genitals. So um, just bear with me. My penis is like the Hummer H2. It's massive, imposing, and inefficient. Uh, despite its fearsome appearance, it falls apart when it sees any serious use and is mostly used by soccer moms. My penis is like a scooter. It's small, and uh, your friends would laugh at you if they knew you rode it, but it's a lot of fun to ride, and it's a lot more powerful than it looks. Um, Oh, my penis is like the 1998 Honda CR-V. It's large enough without being too big, nice-looking, but nothing flashy. Um, It's getting a little older now, but still performs well since I have it serviced regularly. Um, how about this one? My, 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 my penis is like a Ford Pinto. Uh, it's fairly small and had to be removed after an accident at a party that left two people dead and me without any facial hair. Um, <laughs> my penis is like the 1999 Mustang GT. It's yellow, scratched up, and rattles like hell when you put a stereo in it. Uh... My genitals are most like the Honda Civic. They have rims, a spoiler, a big-ass muffler, but no engine upgrades whatsoever, and Asian kids love it. (laughs) Uh, My penis is like the 1999 Hyundai Sonata. It works, and while I've never driven it myself, I assume it's uh, visually decent. Um, How about uh, my penis is like a 1994 Oldsmobile Cutlass. It's getting older, but it runs like a dream. It can satisfy uh, over four people at once and has a good reputation from previous encounters. Um, Oh, my penis is like the Volkswagen Beetle. For a period of time, it was incredibly popular and anybody wanted to ride it, but now it's not cool anymore and people just make jokes about it. Um, Oh, my wang is like the 1994 Volkswagen Golf. It's just the right size to drive anyone around, efficient and an alarming shade of red. Um, okay, my, my penis is like an 03 Kia Spectra. It's a manual. It gets washed often and thoroughly. I get a lot of power relatively quickly, frequently gets pulled over, and uh, not needed in any major maintenance and handles well. However, it's also very cheap and never complimented. And then the last two, uh, the, the next one actually specifically, I'd like to dedicate to Mr. Justin Case from the Case in Point podcast. Uh, available on Audioboom, and uh, you can also hear him on uh, hear it on uh, on YouTube now. Uh, but uh, if you don't know this, Justin is um, building Kit from the series Knight Rider, and so that made me think that maybe my penis was a lot like Kit, as in in the sense that it does its own stunts. Uh, sometimes it yells at me and tells me what to do, so it's like Kit. And then lastly, uh, Back to the Future fan, my penis is like the the DeLorean, the DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future is like my penis uh because when this hits because when it hits 88 miles per hour you're gonna see some serious shit okay so uh yeah that was uh i actually had a lot of fun doing that 
Okay. All right, kids. Are you ready? This is what you all been waiting for. I asked via a uh, via via whatever via poll on the Element of Surprise group to vote for which movie in the Jaws franchise you wanted me to review. Would it be Jaws three, uh, the one where it takes place at Sea World, or Jaws four, the one where the shark chases the family from the shores of New England all the way to the Bahamas? Um, you know, both are terrible. Both are terrible movies. Uh, both are movies that shouldn't have ever been made. And the voting was unanimous. Um, it was Jaws 3, the one that takes place at SeaWorld, was actually what won. So I watched the movie. I watched the movie, and I took notes the whole time. And so these are my notes. This is my review of Jaws 3, formerly originally called Jaws 3D, because um, it came out in three, the year 1983, and it was originally in 3D. But they've never released the 3D version uh, beyond the theatrical, beyond the theater. So all you really see is, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. So, um, you know, to most people, uh, like myself, Jaws 3 or Jaws 3D or Jaws No One Gets the D, um, whatever, is a terrible and stupid movie that is easily the lowest point in the Jaws series and uh, arguably one of the worst atrocities that mankind has ever visited upon itself that didn't involve auto-tune or some sort of nuclear fusion. Um, it's a movie with exactly zero quality ingredients. Um, however, beneath the Dime Store special effects and Louis Gossett Jr.'s uh, scowling mustache uh, delivering some of the wor worst and most ridiculous dialogue I've ever heard in any, any movie in American cinema, um, I found that upon watching it that Jaws 3D is secretly a gripping masterwork of psychological horror about a madman thrown headlong into the howling depths of dangerous insanity and murdering his co-workers. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can start with this. First off, the, the shark isn't like the shark in the first two movies. In the original Jaws, uh, the shark, you know, you, you, you'd see the fin and you kind of always knew the shark was going to attack, but you didn't know when or who or exactly how. Uh, in this movie, the shark doesn't do that. The shark tortures, tortures its victims mentally and physically like it's a serial murderer in Jaws 3. Um, it doesn't just show up and eat people like your grandmother's Jaws, uh, because that would be ridiculous, right? No. Um, every death in this movie, in Jaws 3, is a cold and deliberate killing of both body and spirit. Uh, the first victim is a guy who, without question, was voted most likely to audition for every single cop show in the 80s by his graduating class, I'm sure. Um, he looked like Magnum P.I., um, but if Magnum P.I. was also, like, trying to hulk out like Lou Ferrigno. So um, that's the first victim of the shark. And the shark, apparently uh, wielding the external wrath of the uh, Greek god Poseid Poseidon, uh, doesn't just eat this man, he skins him alive, which logically doesn't even seem possible, uh, considering the shark is supposed to be 35 feet long, and uh, Magnum P.I., no matter how well-muscled he was, um, is maybe 5'11", 6 foot. So, you know, that's got to be some really precise chewing by the shark. It would have had to sit there for half an hour, carefully peeling the man's skin off like it was eating fried chicken, and only serial killers have that level of patience. Um... And the best part is the shark doesn't even eat the body afterward. It, it leaves the corpse more or less intact to be discovered in what I found to be the most horrifying way possible uh, by bobbing up in front of a window and scaring a, sh a shrieking teenage girl. Um, later on in the movie, they bring in like an English crocodile hunter type guy uh, who tries to defeat the shark. Um, but all he ends up doing 
is uh, hitting on uh, the main character's girlfriend at one point and then stupidly tumbling into the shark's open mouth. Um, but, you know, rather than bite the guy in half as the 35-foot shark with uh, teeth the size of Trochosaurus could do and swallow him and be done with it, the shark just lets him sit there in his mouth and slowly drowns as, he, as uh, the shark crushes him to death against the roof of its mouth. You know, and then in like one la like the guy like tries to get out and like crawl to freedom out of the uh, uh, shark's mouth, but he, the shark never bites him once. It just crushes him on its insides of its mouth. Um, the, the crocodile hunter guy he like scrambles for a grenade at one point. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing to blast both himself into the sh and sh the shark into merciful oblivion. Uh, but the shark delivers a delivers a final fatal crushifying squeeze that uh, pulverizes crocodile hunter uh, before he's able to pull the pin. Um, and then, uh, you know, like, because it crushed it, like, his rib cage burst, and he probably inhaled a lungful of water involuntarily, uh, so he got to enjoy the agony of drowning as well as having his organs liquefied. Um, and then his dead body gets paraded around for the remainder of the film, visi perfectly visible inside the shark's open mouth, um, and frozen in, um, holding a grenade fr frozen outward in what appears to be a, uh, like a late 70s black power salute. Um, and, uh, at the end of the movie... The shark corners Lewis Gossett Jr. in a flooded room uh, with two members of his staff, one, one of whom is his nephew and the other is just some random white lady. So uh, the best way to describe this scene is that the shark explodes through a glass wall of the, into the control room like uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's entrance video, you know, where the glass breaks and all that. Um, it knocks the random white lady instantly unconscious um, leaving uh, Louis Gossett Jr.'s scared nephew lost in his own confusion. Uh, but luckily for Louis Gossett Jr., his Louis Gossett Jr. powers render him immune to both sharks and drowning, so he perfectly adapts to the split-second catastrophe, and uh, he remains in complete control. Um, however, the shark is closing in on his two employees, and there's only enough time to save one of them. So, uh, you know, who's he going to save? That's like, a, that's like a choice... Do I save my nephew or do I save random white lady who is now unconscious? That's a choice like the jigsaw killer would make you, uh, make, make you, be, force you to make. And the shark did that shit to Louis Gossett Jr. Uh, help him assist his nephew or assist the unconscious woman. And Louis chooses to swoop in and rescue random white lady and then has to watch as his nephew gets eaten right in front of him as a result. It's a, I, I'm sure it's a decision that laid uh, chattering tick eggs deep into uh, Louis Gossett Jr.'s nightmares until the end of his days. And uh, the shark totally did that on purpose because it's a sadist. Um, which now leads me to my second point of my review of Jaws 3, Jaws 3D, or Jaws 3 Nobody Got the D, is that this shark is a shark. It's a creature that cannot possibly exist. Um, you know, again, th this, this shark, this villainous, villainous shark who is the, the center attraction of any Jaws movie. This one in Jaws 3 is formidable enough to smash its way through in an entire amusement park before getting stuck in an underwater DJ booth like a cat with its head in a Pringles can. Um, but the beast's physical strength isn't what makes it so terrifying. It's uh, an animal that confounds both science and nature, uh, like a stack of physical impossibilities somebody stapled together to cheat on a biology test. Um, the shark's an animal that just simply shouldn't be in this movie. You need, you need crisis counseling just for making eye contact with it. Uh, it's as if it were ripped from the darkest corners of the human psyche, straight from the oozing puddle of corrosive blackness uh, in everybody's mind that incubates our greatest fears. 
specifically the age-old fear of being eaten alive by a big, ugly fish. Uh, first of all, the shark is 35 feet long, and I checked into this. Um, there has never been a great white shark reaching that size ever recorded. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's never been recorded. So I think technically that makes it less of a shark and more of a sea monster. Um, also, in this movie, you know, we never find out where it came from or why. Um, and out of, or, or why, out of the entirety of the world's oceans, it suddenly decided to imprison itself within 200 acres of uh, South Florida theme park. It swims backwards, which is impossible for fish. It has enormous John Heater Napoleon Dynamite gums, and it snarls. It, it snarls and growls and makes noises, which is something that an animal without lungs can't do. So, uh, you know... When, when the shark attacks in the movie, we never see any evidence of its comings or goings. And that's what I was saying previously. You know, like in Jaws 1 and Jaws 2, you, you, you kind of had evidence that the shark was coming around. You know, like dun, 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 dun. And like the camera would be underneath. Even if you didn't see the shark, you just kind of had evidence that the shark was, was around. This shark, there's no evidence of, um, there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that it's coming to attack you or leaving. It just suddenly appears like it was wished into existence by a drunk with a genie, and the characters do not even officially acknowledge the shark until over an hour into the movie. Um, and at that point, they're basically all just operating on panic impulse. Um, you know, after discovering the super-murdered corpse of the Magnum P.I. guy. Um, which means, in all likelihood to me, what I took away from that is that the shark, in all likelihood, isn't real. Um, you know, and I'm going to describe that to you now. Think about it. It's, it's, it's a shark of impossible size. It's an impossible animal that just phases in and out of the water at will, like some sort of pirate ghost, slaying people in completely psychotic ways. Uh, it might actually just be a figment of everyone's imagination, and in reality, the people of that, this particular SeaWorld park are just succumbing to paranoid homicidal delusions, killing each other and blaming it on a chemically-induced phantom shark. Um, in an effort to pinpoint the most likely suspect, let's take a look at this point. At one point in the movie, Dennis Quaid, and yes, that's that Dennis Quaid, he's playing, uh, Dennis Quaid is playing Mike Brody, the son, the adult son of Roy Scheider's chief Brody from Jaws 1 and 2. Um, Dennis Quaid's character, Mike Brody, has an explosive psychotic meltdown, uh, which I took, I rewatched several times and took great lengths to, to describe correctly as I was writing this, these notes down. So, uh, you know, and, and we've all seen the Jaws movies. Typically in, uh, in a Jaws movies, there's at least one character who completely loses his goddamn mind. Um, and in Jaws 3, uh, the creeping fear in SeaWorld finally takes its toll on Dennis Quaid after they discover the flayed body of Magnum P.I. all uh, floating in the aquarium like a slimy coil of fish poop. Um, and before you ask me to repeat myself again, yes, Dennis Quaid is absolutely in this movie. Um, so Dennis has a complete PTSD meltdown and runs screaming through the park to warn people about this hulking murder fish in their midst, but he can't manage to even sputter out a complete sentence in his panic rampage and probably ends up causing more personal injury than the shark does. Um, first, first and foremost, uh, Dennis commandeers a popcorn buggy, and I know his name's Mike Brody, but I'm not calling him Mike. It's Dennis, Le it's Dennis fucking Quaid. Uh, first and foremost, Dennis commandeers a popcorn buggy by diving in front of it and then hurling the driver from the seat like he's being chased by ghosts. And what happens next, you, uh, you ask? 
Well, that buggy, that popcorn buggy, proves to be far too difficult for Dennis to drive while his mind is shrieking itself in half, and he crashes it on a two-foot incline less than uh, 30 seconds later, which sends him tumbling out of the... Uh, out of the out of the driver's seat of the popcorn buggy and into a fleet of strollers. Um, luckily, the strollers were empty. Although I, I watched the scene uh, several times to make sure I got it right, and I have the gut feeling. I just have this gut feeling that if those strollers had been occupied by actual babies, I just assumed Dennis Quaid would have just driven the buggy directly through them. Um, then, rather than taking a moment to realize he's sitting on the ground and be like, huh. Oh, I gotta get together and warn people about the shark. No, he immediately upends himself and high step fucking runs his way towards a crowded amphitheater, uh, doing his best to uh, maintain what I can only describe as the sling blade face. Um, while 300 people in the amphitheater just inexplicably fail to notice him. Uh, Dennis sprints onto stage in his frenzied hysterica and immediately choke slams like a bandstand MC off of the stage into the water, which is where the threat of the shark is supposed to be. He grabs the microphone then and begins screaming incoherently into the microphone to alert some water skiing people about a shark's pr about the shark. But he can't even manage to uh, like form correct words around the suffocating horror that is uh, like fucking up his mind. So he just ends up like spitting out some gibberish like it's in some indecipherable sphinxian riddle and uh his face contorts like he's like trying to power through a shotgun blast of uh of like scolding diarrhea um you know clearly the tainted foulness lurking within SeaWorld has haunted dennis quaid's mind and turned him into a spastic maniac he's like jack torrance from uh the shining he's tormented by inner demons brought to horrible life by some prowling unseen evil that only he seems to be aware of at this point um, which means he's probably the guy that's actually killing everybody. Either that or him and the shark are working in tandem. I haven't decided. Um, the next point I'd like to uh, make, make here is I started talking earlier. This was originally called Jaws 3D. It was originally in 3D in the theaters, and that's the only time you could ever see it in, in the 3D format was in theaters in the year 1983. So, that being said, every print that you've ever seen of this more than likely hasn't been in 3D. So, there are several shots in Jaws 3D that were created with all the glory of the three-dimensional effects in mind. Uh, but since, again, since the 3D print of the film has never been available on home video, nobody has ever been actually able to see those effects for 36 years. Um, and consequently, to watch Jaws 3D, as it was originally called, um, is to be confronted by terrifying images that cannot be explained. Um, it, it's like pointing a telescope out into the stars and seeing nothing but eyes and teeth. Um, this is undoubtedly the type of bullshit that has been tap dancing behind Dennis Quaid's eyes long enough to drive him over the edge. Um, you know, for example, during the opening credits, there's a disembodied fish head floats, uh, floats around towards the camera. It slowly, slowly rotates through a swirling cloud of its own blood with its mouth opening and closing in like a mute reflex as the last of its motor functions burn out behind its dead eyes. Um, and again, this is the opening credits. The movie hasn't even started yet. And the first thing you see is a massacred fish, fish face hovering towards you like some hideous fucking death talisman. Um, it looks like an undead planetoid is like floating at you to whisper a Victorian lullaby at you in your mother's voice. And if, I, if you blink rapidly when it's on screen, you'll see like 
grainy footage of your own funeral playing behind your eyelids. It, it, it hang, and it hangs there. It just hangs there in space for 25 seconds, just daring you to look away from it. Um, and then later, when the shark claims its first vista, uh, victim, the Magnum P.I. guy, uh, we're treated to 10 seconds of a raggedly severed human arm uh, just that was ripped mid-flex from a dude with permed hair and a mustache, and it's just drifting silently through the ocean like Red October. Um, <laughs> it's as if the rejected bin from an organ, organ harvester's cigarette boat actually accidentally spilled into the ocean, and now we're being forced to retrieve it. Um, okay, and then the end of the climax of Jaws 3... Uh, <laughs> The best way I can describe this effect, the the previously mentioned effect uh, where Louis Gossett Jr. is forced to make his uh, his jigsaw-like choice of saving the, the random white lady or his own nephew, um, to describe the 3D effects of the shark there would be to describe them... It, 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 okay, so best way I can say it is that, uh, you know, the shark's coming at the glass, and it looks like the, what we see as the audience is the, is a palsy-stricken ultra-shark gliding motion, motionlessly towards the camera. Uh, and then it bursts into the storm of glass that catapults outward in slow motion like shards from, from a long-forgotten nightmare. Um, it's like a puppet show interpretation of the exact moment that a person goes insane. Um, and then the film's final two minutes are, oddly enough, eerily similar to its opening. Uh, creating something of like a brilliant bookend that only the most perceptive and ambitious directors would craft. Because um, now we find ourselves staring back into the center of another blood cloud that's spewing bone shrapnel and meat, uh, event immediately followed by the sudden and violent death of the once mighty shark. Um, you know, without the benefits of the 3D effects, Jaws 3 just looks like the screaming echoes of vengeful madness. Um, it's a 90-minute kaleidoscope of pure fucking chaos. Uh, anyone with these images honeycombing through their mind like hungry termites would almost certainly start murdering their co-workers and blaming it on a mythological hypershark. Um, you know, so regardless of whether the film should really just be called Dennis Quaid 3D instead of Jaws 3D, uh, to those of you who have gotten this far and still think that Jaws 3D is just a B-list gimmick picture about an impossibly massive shark eating minimum wage workers uh, outside Orlando... Um, prepare to have your minds blown straight into outer space. Because I'm going to tell you what it really is. It's actually a B-gimmick picture about the intense trauma of claustrophobia. The shark, if it even exists, is some part of a euphoric uh, yet terror-induced acid trip. Um, Dennis Quaid, who I may have neglected uh, to mention also, again, he's playing the, the adult son of Roy Scheider's chief Brody. He's playing adult Mike Brody. And the body count are all incidental. SeaWorld is the true killer in this movie. SeaWorld is the thing killing everyone. And check it out. So, like, every person that gets killed by the shark is trapped in a small enclosed area. Magnum P.I. is fumbling with the lock on an underwater cage whenever he gets beefed. So, uh, but to be, I mean, to be fair, he's actually on the outside of the cage making sure that the door is secure. But the visual, the visual implication is, is there. It's, it's clear. He's trapped and the only way out is through the shark's anus. Um... Later, when Louis Gossett Jr. Is, has to make his Sophie's Choice in an underwater death chamber, roughly the size of a studio apartment, and uh, two-thirds of the room are being occupied by a biting shark face, uh, there's literally no place for his doomed nephew to go. So the poor bastard can only sit there uh, like a cocktail olive until the shark finally annihilates him. Um, and then the crocodile hunter, a guy who I mentioned earlier, is crushed to death inside the shark's mouth. 
Um, it's like a suffocating tomb that encloses in around him as he frantically tries to crawl out of it. And even the shark itself is a massive ocean beast within the entirely too small uh, enclosures of SeaWorld. Every shot you see is like a bizarre fever dream caused by untreated pneumonia. Um, when the shark attacks the Undersea Kingdom exhibit, the submerged network of viewing tunnels loaded with the hundreds of tourists there, um, it's in unquestionably a result of the hulking fish rage brought on by claustrophobic hysteria. That, of course, being, again, that the shark actually existed and wasn't just some, you know, lucid acid trip of Dennis Quaid's. Uh, but so the Undersea Kingdom, as they call it in the film, begins to flood and the exits seal up before anyone can get out. And uh, it locks dozens of people inside an already tiny underwater chamber and they can do nothing now but watch helplessly as the shark <laughs> continues to just freak out while now the room is now uh, relentlessly filling up with seawater. So in the end, what I took away from this movie, in the end, not nobody, nobody, not Dennis Quaid, not the shark, not even uh, us as audience members, as viewers of this movie, are truly safe. Uh, we'll, we're just simply forced to witness the whole event go down while the shitty movie drowns us like an unwanted Chinese baby. And uh, so, you know, that's that that's what it is. So uh, if, if I had to give it a score out of, out of five stars, I give it six. Go and immediately watch Jaws 3, formerly known as Jaws 3D, or as I call it, Jaws 3, Nobody Gets the D. Um... All right. I, you know what? I think that's going to cut it for the night. Um, thank you guys, of course, for listening to this. Uh, you know, everything, all the feedback I get from uh, every, each and every one of you is, uh, you know, it makes this worth doing. And I love doing this show and I love podcasting. Um, I do want to say I, I, I recently was in contact with Mr. Justin Case from the Case in Point podcast. Um, we're going to look together to get something together to do something between the two of us uh, soon. Um uh, so, you know, also check out Case in Point, uh, his podcast. You can listen to it on Audio Boom as well as on YouTube. Um, of course, check out uh, a fireside chat hosted by EOS Original, um, Mr. Ryan McCormick, Grimace himself. Uh, check out a fireside chat. Uh, he, him and Tiff also do their, uh, Tiffany Moore, uh, do their podcast called 4AM Knows All My Secrets. Uh, that's currently, I got to admit, I'm not, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here or offend anybody else because I do listen to all your podcasts. I listen to all of them. But uh, 4AM Knows All My Secrets is uh, cur current currently my favorite listen. And um, so check that out. Um, a Fireside Chat and 4AM are both on uh, Libsyn.com. And then, of course, there's a Pat, Pat, Jesus Christ, Ian, Paul, and Matt. I do this every fucking time. Ian, Paul, and Matt, the, the McSauce boys, are doing the McSauce comic book podcast. That's over at my old home of uh, Podomatic. So you can hear that there. And, of course, check out any other podcast you come across. Um, thank you again for listening, everybody, and uh, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, 2019 is going to be an interesting fucking year, and, uh, you know, without any further ado, cue the fucking bear music. If you change your mind, on the dirty line, honey, I'm still free, take a chance on me, if you need me, let me know, gonna be around. If you got no play